0: Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, I was we were just talking before we hit record about how the deadline was a few weeks ago, but it feels like it's been years. It's <laughs> how, how are you holding up? Uh, how did you enjoy your time off, and how are you enjoying the baseball season so far?
1: Yeah, so um, first of all, we always take a break because the deadline is intense and it's kind of our peak period. And then we go, ah, okay, <laughs> wrap up. Uh, so I went on vacation for two weeks. Uh, the first week was at a baseball tournament in Cooperstown for one of my sons playing in it, which was awesome. And then, uh, sometime in Orlando, Florida, I family. So that was great too. Happened to catch a bit of COVID on the last bit of it, but it's no big deal. <clears throat> There's a new variant going around. So be aware of that folks. Um, but it feels more like a cold to me. Um, So otherwise, yeah, um, I'm enjoying. Well, I think the base, I think the baseball season gets into a little bit of a lull before kind of the big push in September. You know, teams are sorting themselves out. Um, So I think you know it's fun to watch, but it's also kind of like. Uh, like the Padres kind of like slipped and like, you weren't sure if they were in or out. And now it seems like it's not their season. A few other teams, the angels, obviously we can talk about them. Um, happened to go to a Mets angels game last night and see Otani, And I know we're going to talk about him. So that was cool. Um, so enjoying the game for what it is now, looking forward to September and the playoff push. And um, we'll have a lot uh, to say once we get closer to the off season.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, it is an interesting time of, of the season because we are really in the past couple of weeks starting to see teams, uh, the teams that are out of it more aggressively promote some of their interesting prospects up to the big leagues. You know, the A's are suddenly like they're still terrible and I still don't watch most of their games, but they are more watchable now that they have a lot of young kids in the lineup that you at least want to want to get a look at. And plenty of other teams across the game have done that. And then, you know, there's also like you mentioned, the Padres or the Yankees where I don't really have a reason to watch their games anymore. Like they're they're out of it, and it's a little bit sad to watch them. Whereas the past couple months, I would I would tune in when their games are on just to see like oh are they gonna are they gonna get on that hot streak? Are they gonna make a run and and maybe make some deadline moves and be looking a lot better? Um, so yeah, interesting time of year. It's kind of the calm before the. St- I mean, we, we, we use that for every time of the year, at least I do. Um, but really things are about to start picking up with the playoff race. We're seeing some teams make some moves here and and throughout September we'll see which teams can kind of sustain these hot runs thinking about the Mariners in particular um but yeah lots to get into even uh even now that there are no trades post deadline uh, we will have a few items from the deadline to recap but let's go ahead and start with what you alluded to there with the very disappointing Shohei Ohtani news this was man that that was just a bummer of a night It, it comes out that Ohtani has a tear in his UCL He's done pitching for the season. Tommy John seems likely it's undecided as of this point, but it's hard to imagine he wouldn't. Um, And then like two minutes after that, the news came out that Mike Trout, who had just been activated from the injured list from a a long hamate injury, uh, that he was going back on the injured list after just a game back. So really, really disappointing news on both fronts. Obviously, you know, the, the fact that Trout's re-injury and continued inability to stay healthy and, and concerns about his long-term prognosis. The the fact that that gets so overshadowed just tells you how big of a deal the Otani news is. Um, But it, it sucks all around. There's like no other way to put it. It, It's bad for baseball that we're going to have to likely spend another year and a half not watching Otani in action, you know, full, fully operational two-way player which we've gotten so used to and enjoyed watching so much the last few years but also for Otani himself it couldn't really come at a much worse time you know he almost made it through this phenomenal MVP season where he's like firing on both fronts and gonna earn the largest contract in big league history and he still probably is he's still gonna get a boatload of money here but it is undeniable that this is gonna cost him at least some money i i think teams will be rightfully a little bit concerned about you know are we going to lock this guy up to a 10 12 year deal the thought process being he's going to provide value on both sides of the ball for most of that deal when he's going to start out that contract on the shelf and you know second tommy johns they do happen and pitchers recover for them fine all the time but once you get into that, that second territory, I think the success rate drops just a little bit, and it opens up the door, God forbid, for a third Tommy John, and that one is one that guys really can't come back from. So obviously terrible news. I'm going to take some some partial responsibility here. Literally the night before, I, uh, I texted my friend and said, hey, I, I still haven't seen Otani Pitch in person. Let's start to look ahead, start to plan a trip out to L.A. before the end of this season and hope we can catch him on his turn in the rotation. And, and so I was starting to look into it, and then literally the next day this news drops. So my fault. My bad. Sorry, guys. It's all, um, all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rough news, though. I, I, I don't know if I have much more to say on it, uh, but I'll let you give your piece.
1: So a lot to unpack there. First of all, having just seen Otani last night, uh, hitting obviously only, it feels weird to say this, but he seems unfazed. I mean, he just, like, goes up and does his thing. It's a double. It's a triple. He steals second. He steals third. He's just, like, he's a dude, right? It's like, I don't care. I'm just playing. I don't, you know, so, like, I don't think he's lost any sleep over it, personally. Um,
0: yeah, we saw on the day of the announcement, yeah. right? So they had a, they had a double <laughs> header that day. The first game, he pitches, and he leaves in the second inning. You know, his velo's down. They call it arm fatigue. He gets an MRI between games, so he knew... Going into Game Two of that doubleheader, he knew—I don't know if he specifically knew that he had a UCL tear—but he knew something wasn't right, something wasn't good, and that it, it was going to be a big deal. And then that second game, he goes out there—I think—I think he hit like a hustle double or something like that. And then you see the pictures of uh, Ellie De La Cruz like touching his arm, like to see it, that he's real, and uh, <laughs> I think Noelvi Marte was like bowing to him, and like the whole young Reds infield, which is all like phenomenally talented players themselves. They're all crowding around this guy as he stands on second base just because they're like are are you a, a person like like <laughs> how do you do this thing that you do and he all he took it all in good stride and still smiling and still playing a, a strong game even though he had this like industry game shattering news in the back of his head that only he knew <laughs> so yeah I, I think that's a great observation like he's he's just running with it and that's I, I don't think I anyone should have expected anything less from him. Just based on what we know about him and how good natured he seems to be. But yeah, he, he's just rolling with it.
1: Yeah. So, so, so personally, from Atana's perspective, I, I don't obviously can't speak for him, but I it just, my impression is like he's just that kind of guy. He's like, okay, whatever. I'll just roll with it. I'll do my thing. I'll hit. I'll, you know, uh, he's just, um, you know, and that's so, so that gives you a sense of confidence that he can come back from anything because he just seems so nonplussed by everything and, and so confident so so that's that gives me a sense of optimism that um even if he has to have tommy john he'll just like okay i'll do my thing i'll rehab whatever and then i'll come back and i'll pitch again in 2025 like you have a higher degree of confidence that he he of all people can do that because of just his his way of being in, in his track record so there's that um now the parlor game kind of the, the media aspect, which we were going to get into, by the way, because we're going to launch a new, a new version of our site with free agent, uh, calculations going forward. And we were, I was, I was anxiously awaiting Otani obviously as the big fish, uh, to see like, okay, what do our numbers say he should get over various periods of time, depending on the length of the contract. And so now you have to model them differently as not necessarily a two-way player it's all based on basically the probability of him coming back as a pitcher you know he's going to be able to hit for a while there's not really much risk in that if at all so the question is um you know you kind of go through the scenarios right so let's say he has tommy john doesn't pitch in 2024 comes back in 2025 is he a starter is he just as effective as he was before or do you take a sort of a probability approach and say okay well he might be a starter but maybe there's some risk now, and maybe they don't use him as a starter much. Maybe he's a reliever, or maybe he's not as effective. Maybe he loses some filo. And so you have to kind of play all those sort of probability games with the pitching side of it. And then there's the probability that um, – well, I won't say he – there's a low probability that he never pitches again. I, I think that's probably – based on who he is in his track record, I think that's probably the lowest – but you have to at least consider it. So in other words, you have to model all of these cases basically and then say, okay, what would he get in free agent? I know some journalists are talking about, well, maybe he takes a pillow deal for just a one-year or two-year thing while he's while he's rehabbing, and then he gets the – another. Then, then we show that he comes back as a pitcher, and then he gets paid again. Maybe. Um, but you know, that becomes a little bit complicated. What I do think is that, um, everyone sees that he's a superstar, that he's this non, you know, in, inflappable guy who's very, you can count on to do the right thing. And so the most likely scenario is you just sort of model it out as, um, okay, he's going to hit for however many years, let's say till he's 40, because he's basically a DH not playing the field. And there's a high probability it comes back as a starter, but you have to discount it somewhat, say, take another 20% off. I'm making that up, but we'll figure it out. Um, and so you, so you discount like zero probability which pitches in 2024 and then like 80% effectiveness from 2025 on. And then you say, okay, maybe that's your baseline and then you sort of, and then you sort of. Estimate the probabilities of the other scenarios within that, and you come up with a long-term picture of, okay, what is he going to cost you? So if he were totally risk-free as a pitcher and hitter before this happened, you know he was going to get, yeah, well north of 500 for like a 10-year period. Let's just say 10 years. Um, Now there's a question about that, but if you sort of do it that way, I think you can get to kind of close to that. Uh, I'm not going to put a number out there because we haven't calculated that yet. Uh, but i do think that um if you take a long-term point of view you know those who play the parlor game of what is he going to make in free agency will 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 get to th- it's still going to be very high <laughs> long story short it's still gonna be very high because you can kind of count on him uh, based on his character and his history
0: yeah and, and there's just so much going for him even with this with this terrible news right and, and like especially the silver lining for otani it He's just been an otherworldly hitter this season. He has he has a 183 WRC plus. I'm gonna pull it up right now, but da, 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 isn't I think that's around Judge territory from last year. Um yes, Judge had a 209. Okay, that's insane. Uh <laughs> Judge had a two oh nine WRC plus with good outfield defense last year. Uh there's a reason he won the MVP folks. Uh but one eighty-three from Otani is still really really good especially since Otani runs and he brings so much to you off the field and and like the value that he has from a marketing and sponsorship and all of that perspective um, so even in that worst case scenario which I fully agree with you is the least likely scenario where he doesn't pitch again like this is a guy who could very easily be converted I mean it depends on his arm a little bit but converted from a DH into a well above average you know first baseman or corner outfielder and you still have an extremely valuable player he's not even 30 yet he just turned 29 and he's that level of a hitter you're gonna have a lot a lot of value there even if he doesn't pitch again or isn't the same when he does pitch and then there's like you like you kind of explained there's like a whole spectrum of possibilities where he does pitch and maybe he's right back to how he was well that's an amazing player that's the perennial mvp Maybe he's a tick below on the mound. Well, cool, that's still super valuable if he's like a three, four instead of a one or a two. Like that's still insanely valuable player, especially the way he hits. And then maybe he's like a reliever. Like I kind of had that thought, I think a lot of people did during some of his early early career struggles to stay healthy of like, what if he just ends up as like a dominant late inning arm with, with how nasty his stuff is and his control can kind of go at times if that's where he ends up, then that's still insanely valuable. Like there's, there's so much to like here, obviously. Like I'm, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not breaking any news on this podcast that Shohei Ohtani is very likable and and very good at baseball and a very valuable baseball player. Um, Yeah. and, And there's no way, there's no way this injury does anything but hurt his, his value and his future earnings expectations and his future like projections. But I think you're right that there's so much of a floor here. He's so talented and so special in all these other ways. And there's so much of a ceiling here if he does just come back and he's, he's normal um, that he's still going to make buckets and buckets of money.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, you know, we, we focus on the baseball value, but there's also this sort of marketing value as well. So as I mentioned, I was at the game last night between the Mets and the Angels and the crowd, which was a Mets crowd, it was a Mets home game, booed when they intentionally walked him like everyone wanted to see him take his fourth at bat and when he first came up he had his double and triple and was thinking okay he's going for the cycle and everybody wanted to see that because he's so popular like even the opposing team wants to see him do well right um so so i mean the marketability is just off the charts so there's that factor as well that you have to sort of you know we don't typically capture that but there is something there clearly um, the thing I wanted to mention though, that does give me pause a little bit, is the gap of time between his last uh, elbow injury and Tommy John and this one. It was only four years ago. He basically missed all of 2019. And well, 2020 was the, was the COVID shortened season. Uh, but as a pitcher, that was only four years. Typically you wanna see sort of a longer time frame. In other words, you repair the elbow, do the Tommy John series, uh, surgery, and then you should be good. The typical time frame, I think, if I'm not correct, if I'm not wrong, is around seven years. And then you have a second one. And then you got another six years, let's say. And you have a, then you're done, or you have a third one. Um, so the fact that there's only a four-year gap in between, it I don't know if it's just normal variance or what have you, but it makes me wonder a little bit how vulnerable that elbow is when, he, when he's pitching.
0: Yeah, it could be normal variance. It could be, hey, this is a dude who throws triple digits, and, and that means he'll skew on you know, the higher intensity side for, for the wear and tear you're putting on that elbow. It could be the two-way aspect where most pitchers aren't also hitting 115 mile an hour line drives all around the field using that same elbow. So I, I think you're right. Obviously, sample size is one. We can't draw too much from it. Um, the other slightly concerning uh note that I saw was I believe it was Evan Drellick of The Athletic. Um I'll try to dig up the article and, and put it in the show notes, but there was an article in The Athletic suggesting that because of the nature of the second Tommy John, it might be better for Otani if he doesn't hit at at least for some period of time while he's rehabbing. Um, which obviously changes the calculus a lot as well, because that would be, you know, his 2024 season, at least a chunk of it where you're saying, hey, this guy shouldn't hit if we want his elbow to rehab all of the way and rehab as best as it can. And that 2024 season, just based off of how the aging curve works, would be expected to be his highest surplus value year of his next contract. And and you can, you can fight, you can push back on that because it is an odd case where... It's probably not going to be his true highest surplus value year since he isn't also pitching. I guess you would look at 2025 as hopefully being that year. But it is one of the more valuable years on the contract um, since since it's before most of that age-related regression is expected to to hit. So if you're looking at an Otani contract and you're, and you're looking at signing him this offseason and your doctors are saying like, hey, this guy should probably take it easy that first year just to be safe. Um, and you're looking at potentially a washed first year from Otani that I feel like that changes the calculus a bit and, and maybe yeah on the flip side maybe that makes him a better fit for like the Mets like I, I hate to even bring them up and turn this into a Mets conversation because that's going to happen all offseason anyway I don't mean to jump the gun there but if they're looking at like a quick like hey 2024 might not be our year either we know we have some holes we need to shuffle some pieces around what have you um then maybe otani becomes an even better fit for them of like his 2024 season is also kind of a question mark but you figure he's fully operational going into 2025 when you expect the rest of the team to be that that could be an attractive fit Uh, again not breaking any news on this podcast that shohei otani is going to be an attractive fit
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's a good point that maybe you can say, all right, of the teams that would want to sign him and could sign him based on his high price tag, um, how does he line up with their next window? You could say that uh, he does line up well with the Mets. Then there's the Dodgers who are perennially contenders um, and maybe a couple others. But but it is a good point if you sort of call 2024 a wash. Um the other small point I wanted to talk about, you just touched on, um, like maybe ultimately if he doesn't pitch, he becomes a corner outfielder or first baseman. Um, I just want to sort of say uh, the scenario where – let's say he doesn't pitch obviously in 2024, uh, but he hits in 2024. This is the last thing should be they should be doing, and, 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 and I don't think anyone is saying that, but I just want to sort of clarify the point for my own reasons, um, that he should not be playing the field in 2024. If anything, he should not be hitting at all. Um, to, to kind of speed up his rehab so there's no scenario where he would be a corner out from 2024. if we did end up not pitching maybe he becomes that position player starting in 2025 or 26 i don't know that's a long way down the line but i think that's a remote sort of possibility um that we also have to factor in but appropriately
0: yeah yeah absolutely and i f- what, what i was trying to get out at with that point is even in that event like where it's it's the catastrophe on the pitching side and he's just not going to be able to pitch again, like depending on where his arm truly is, I think he could still be a, a, you know, at first base and and in the corner outfield, it's hard to generate too much positive defensive value just because those are on the lower, lower end of the positional spectrum. But just given how talented of an athlete Shohei Otani is and and how quick he moves, I, I wouldn't put it past him that if, if something goes catastrophically wrong and i'm I'm knocking on wood here um on the pitching side i think he could be a plus defender at one of those positions and regain recoup a little bit of value there it's not going to be anywhere near him as a pitcher but i think if you're a team looking to sign him and you're saying hey this is the worst case scenario is he's like probably a decent defender at first base or right field yeah yeah. i I think that's that's at least a little bit of a fallback again hopefully something we never truly have to
1: consider and I believe he did some of that in Japan before he came over, right? I think he played outfield.
0: Yeah, he played some right field, and he's he's yeah. spotted a few innings here and there over the last couple of years as well, especially before they, you know, made the Otani rule where he can stay DHing on those days he pitches. He had a couple mm-hmm. games where he would slide out to right field to get one more at bat in, and yeah. I, I don't think he got much action there, but. I mean, I this man could do anything. He could, you <laughs> could stick true. this man in center field, and he'd figure it out. I'm sure. Oh
1: God, I didn't realize how fast he was when I saw him stealing bases last night. I think, oh yeah, I don't think about that too much, but yeah, he's man, he's something.
0: Yes, and I, I wish we had better reason. I mean, we we knew we were going to be talking about Otani a lot uh, this going forward, and and we're going to continue to talk about him as we get into the off season here. I wish it was this time. Uh, <laughs> In, under better circumstances, but I'll still uh, never turn down a reason to talk about Otani. And, I, and I'm jealous you got to just see him. <laughs> um, I, I think we're good there. Do, do you have anything else you want
1: to add? No, I think we're good. Uh, just to, you know, again, when we relaunch the next version of our site, we are going to have free agent uh, extensions, uh, calculations, and estimates. Uh, so we will get to that number, and that will include all these various scenarios sort of averaged out. Um so just a heads up that we will be getting to that we're not just going to you know spin our wheels here we actually will get to a number at some point
0: yeah and and along those lines on the new site i know we've mentioned it a few times on the podcast maybe on twitter as well um still in the works we didn't want to rush cram anything out with the deadline really bearing down on us there uh so we decided to to take a, a bit of a pause on it and and revisit and it it will be coming very soon Uh, (laughs) i I presume
1: early in the off season yep
0: yes so look out for that we will have more updates as we get closer to that yep um speaking of the deadline let's take a quick look back um we don't need to go way deep here Uh, i think at the time the window has kind of passed for that um if you want a deal by deal breakdown i will have our trade deadline roundup post linked in the show notes here. I wrote up every deal that went through, no matter how big, how small. Um, So feel free to go check that out if there's any trades you missed, or you just wanna kind of remember what happened at the deadline, because I'll be honest, I have forgotten a lot of these deals already. Um, But I figure we should at least kind of recap how the deadline went. Uh, John, as he does every year, put together a takeaways, like a summary piece of, of what happened at the deadline and what we learned from it, how the model performed, things like that. And so I will hand the keys over to John to to run us through that. And then maybe we can talk about a couple of the bigger trades after.
1: Yeah, so uh, first of all, our model um, did well again. Um, So I'll I'll just sort of run by the numbers real quick. So there were 57 trades, the ones accepted by our model, uh, 52. So 52 out of 57 comes to Mm 91.2% with a variance of around 2.6, well, around actual 2.6. So there were 46 of what I'll call wins, which are very clearly in kind of the sweet spot of the bell curve. And then there were six sort of like slightly off, kind of technically accepted, but semi-wins, let's call them. And there were five losses. So so in other words, it's always a bell curve. I do believe we have the strongest version of our model that we've ever had, and so some of the reliever trades, for example, um, you know, we're we're there's a lot less variance than there used to be in the reliever models. So that's good. Um, the ones that we felt the best about were actually the biggest ones uh, for Scherzer and then Verlander. Um, Steve Cohen does follow us on Twitter. I'm not saying he uses our site because he's got his own people, but they we nailed them. I'm just going to say, we nailed those trades and, and there's no getting around it. And uh, the other sort of thing I wanted to say is that um, it's a validation. You know, some people sometimes question whether our, our basis for evaluating on, on the basis of surplus value is correct. And I always listen to with an open mind, but then I look at the stats and I say, it is what it is. We're in the 90s in terms of acceptance rate. And, you know, here we have the two biggest deals following exactly our model. And what I mean by this, if you look at the Scherzer and Verlander deals, is they were both significantly underwater because they had such big contracts. They're both obviously still excellent players, but they were overpaid. And so the Mets had to – they they had to cough up the money just to get to break even for what they're worth. But then to get anything back, they had to cough up more money. Just to get prospects back that they liked, which they did in both cases. And in both cases, it worked out pretty much exactly where our model said it would. So it was a big validation of A, our model, and B, kind of the concept of basing it on surplus value, even when you have good players like Scherzer and Verlander. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, but for the most part, it does. Um, The other thing I would mention is that sometimes you see overpays a little bit more at the deadline because it's the only avenue. It's your only chance to acquire better players. You can't do it and you can't, you know, in the offseason, you have the free agent options, right? And so you have two options. You have free agency and trades. Here, it's your only option. So sometimes if you want the player you have to overpay. So we saw that, uh, particularly with starting pitchers, a couple of couple of teams jumping the gun. Uh, the Angels, obviously, who decided to go for it. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. But they decided to go for it, A, by not trading Otani, B, by overpaying for Giolito, which has not worked out at all for them. Um, the Dodgers did overpay for Lance Lins, but I think they've found something they like about him, and he seems to have settled in with them a little bit better than he was with the White Sox, so they probably knew something that we didn't. But anyway, starting pitcher we knew was going to be kind of a a hot commodity, and the supply-and-demand balance was going to be um, you know, pretty high, and it played out that way as well. Now, one thing I will say is the... The We saw a spectrum as well. Like some of the back-end arms, like Ryan Yarborough, ba- Bailey Falter. Like, you know, it comes down to impact, right? If, if Teams just want a depth player. They're not going to pay much for them. They're going to pay more for impact players. Um, so, And that goes to my third point, which is there were players who did not get traded who were not having great years. Dylan Carlson was in the rumor building a lot. Um, Tim Anderson's having a terrible year. A lot of people thought he would get moved, but he didn't. But basically, you know, at the deadline, teams want to impact, want impact players, Teams uh, players who are going to help them. Maybe there's something they can fix in a player, or maybe it's just a player who could platoon for them, but in some way or shape or form, they want an impact player, and that matters. If they don't feel like that's going to, you know, that option is no better than what they have in-house, then they're not going to do it. Um, I listened to... Uh, a really interesting podcast with uh, Dave Dombrowski of the Phillies on there, and he said basically the, the same things. Like we had to weigh sort of, you know, when they were talking about Michael Lorenzen and trading for him, like is how much better is he than our in-house options, is what it came to, comes down to. And I think every team is doing that. And so if the, if it's that much better, then yes, they will pay up a little bit more for them. If he's not, then, then they're not going to. And then finally. Um, I think we should talk for a moment on the Eduardo Rodriguez non-trade the one that you know didn't happen where they had kind of lined it up to the Tigers and Dodgers and then he opted to stick with the Tigers because he had a, a no-trade clause that one still kind of mystifies me a little bit because I don't think the Dodgers would have gone that far if they knew he was going to veto it so I mean he has his own personal reasons but clearly there were some non-baseball issues there kind of affecting that one but overall, I thought it was a great deadline for us, possibly our best one ever. Nailed the shares of Verlander deals. Um, we're right on a whole bunch of other ones. We had a couple of misses. I'll just say, yeah, we missed on Giolito and Lynn. Missed on Sam Maul, a fairly minor trade. And we missed on the Jake Berger-Eder deal. Although that one is sort of trending towards, we were probably right, Berger is being more valuable than Eder is who's off to a bad start. So, So overall, I feel pretty good about how our model did at the deadline. It kind of played out the way we thought it would. I'm glad Scherzer and Verlander were moved because otherwise it would have been a pretty immemorable one, so it was good.
0: Yeah, all great points there. Uh, I think, honestly, when you're talking about the performance of the model, my key takeaway from this deadline is your line here in, in this piece of what this tells us is that our model is doing its job. It's never been perfect, but then no model in history ever has been, otherwise it wouldn't be a model. And that's kind of where we are. We're we're at that stage where exactly. like, we're going to, we're going to kind of bounce, at least it seems, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I agree that our model is as good as it's ever been. We've made some significant changes. And even in just like, just eyeballing the values for like, for like a once over QA before the deadline, I was like, these are all like really right in line with what I'd expect. And And obviously there's maybe a little bit of like confirmation bias in there because I've been, my, my brain has been formatted to the model at this point um just overlooking at it and using it over the past few years but it seems as accurate as it's ever been um there's always going to be variance there's always going to be a few misses there we're always we're never going to hit 100% for a deadline or an off season and that's okay if we did i feel like it would be a case of overfitting and we need to take a look at what's actually happening there um uh, because we expect there to be outliers you know we expect Certain teams models to differ from ours and certain teams evaluations of players to differ from the consensus like that is how this works. If everybody valued everybody exactly the same, we wouldn't see as many trades. Right. Um, I think the the main outlier when we talk about that kind of discussion is the Marlins and, and the moves that they made. As you mentioned with burger and Eater, like that one looks like it's trending more in our direction. But then if you look at the Josh Bell and Gene Segura trade, it looks like it's in the early goings going the other direction. Josh Bell has been really, really good for the Marlins and Gene Segura got cut right away. And the other kind of uh, acquisition in that deal for Cleveland, Khalil Watson, he has his warts um, both on and off the field. So that one is still really interesting to me in general it did seem like the Marlins just valued players differently than other teams did I don't know how many other teams would have traded Segura for Bell straight up let alone add in a prospect with some upside in that deal um so I think I think I am confident you know looking at these six here or I guess five here that we've missed on uh Giolito Lynn mole burger eater and bell Segura like I'm fine tossing those Marlins ones out as outliers, as they just viewed these players differently than we did, and that's going to happen. And I think I'm even fine characterizing the Giolito and Lynn ones as, like, these were just overpays. And obviously, they've gone in opposite directions. The Giolito trade has been a disaster for the Angels. Uh, The Lance Lynn trade has been phenomenal for the Dodgers so far. He's been really good. Joe Kelly has thrown three and two thirds scoreless with seven strikeouts like that's kind of exactly what they wanted from him and I think Lance Lynn has like a sub two ERA since joining the team or something like that um so that trade has absolutely worked out for them but I don't think we were wrong to see Lynn as having little to no value given how much money he was making and just how bad he was in the first half of the season with the White Sox so I don't think there's anything we did wrong on either of those or our model was wrong on on either of those uh Mole, relievers are going to be relievers that one was certainly a bit strange but on the flip side and, and we got some thoughtful comments on this from kyle Bodie of driveline on twitter x whatever we're calling it um Jim, joe boyle who was the a's return in that trade like, he's a super high variance prospect. He's, like, a super high strikeout, high walk, like, great stuff, just needs to find the zone, and he'll be an ace type guy. And so far, since joining the A's organization, he has done that. He's been really, really good and got promoted to Triple A. And so that's a case of, like, yes, maybe it was technically rejected by the model, but the, the variance on a guy like Boyle isn't the same as a variance on on, you know, every other lower rated pitching prospects, like you look at a i think his name is chad patrick <laughs> the guys the guy that the a's got for jace peterson from the d backs like he's a total like fourth like fifth starter at best type guy fifth starter swingman, command doesn't really have any kind of stuff to speak of he's just gonna kind of pray that guys hit it uh, that hitters hit it right at guys on his infield and and that's gonna be the way he succeeds if he makes it to the big leagues like that guy you feel very confident that that's who he is there isn't really much ceiling there but a boil type there's a lot of variance and so if you think you can fix him if you think and i guess i guess the same argument could apply to a lance lynn um where if you are particularly confident that you can fix him you can get him back on track then he's gonna have more value to you in like a meaningful way not just in like a you know, bumps his value by a million type way. So I think those are my takeaways from the ones that we missed on. Um, but in general, like, the model did really well. I don't think we learned anything too significant that we didn't already know from this deadline. I think we're, you know, not to not to pat ourselves on the back too hard, but we're getting pretty good at this. I, I think I, I think I felt really good about about how this deadline went.
1: Yeah, so it's been 4 years now and obviously I think you know the proof is in the pudding after 500 plus trades we've done pretty well. So at this point I think we're good. Um but we're always going to try to be better. We're always looking at fine tuning here and there. I'm starting to see like still little tiny cases of like okay, the the you know bottom half of the order guys, the the replacement level players, the bench players, utility and fielders that are going first. The guys like that that have less impact at the bat you know, tend to be lower valued. We've obviously taken that into consideration and, and, and factored that in, but there's still like, mm, maybe we can tweak that a little bit more. Um, like I said, there's a spectrum of pitching where the high sort of the top of the rotation guys get more bottom, get less. It's not a straight line. So we can maybe play with that a little bit, but we're still, I mean, we're still close, but we could be even closer, I guess, where we're at now. So we look at those things. We're never going to sit, sit on our laurels.
0: Yeah, Absolutely um i guess this is a good opportunity let's go ahead and take a look a little bit closer at the scherzer and verlander deals just because those were by far the two biggest trades of the deadline and as you noted uh model nailed those like to a t like couldn't have been much closer on either of them which is kind of incredible and really like the strongest indicator of the model's success and and even in these like extremely complicated cases as we'll especially get into with verlander and that um that player option that he has uh even in these cases the model is right in line so i, I think that's these are like the largest indicators of the model's success um so starting with the scherzer deal it's a little bit more straightforward we had him at negative 16.4 million and the Mets kicked in about $35 million in cash. I've seen some different figures. I don't know if we'll ever get the definitive one, um, but about $35 million in cash. And in exchange, they get one prospect from the Rangers, which is shortstop Luis Angel Acuna, who we had at 20.1. So this lined up pretty perfectly with 20.1 to the Mets and about 19 or 20-ish, depending on the exact cash amount going to the Rangers. And there's so much at play here that, like, it's it's nothing... You know, if there weren't math behind this, it would be a miracle to get this right. Like if, if you were just kind of, if you didn't have the simulator and the model to go off of and you were just eyeballing it as a fan and saying like, hmm, I think the Rangers should get Scherzer. They'll probably have to give up Luis San Acuna and hmm, let's call it $35 million in cash. Like that's just such a, a shot in the dark. But we have the math to support this being like, yes, that that is kind of the value gap here between this guy who's underwater because he's owed so much money and he's 39 years old and not pitching the best this season versus this is how much this prospect is worth and this is the gap that needs to be covered in money to to make up for that. Um so yeah, th- this one ended up pretty much perfect. Uh Scherzer has been pretty good since joining the Rangers after, you know, he really was disappointing for the Mets this season. Both he and Verlander didn't quite do what they expected them to do when they made those commitments, but he's been a lot better. Maybe it's just a, you know, maybe it's just he was always gonna be due for some positive regression. Maybe it's, you know, becoming more focused and and joining a playoff push. And we all know what kind of a competitor Max Scherzer is, Uh, but he's been great for them. He has a 264 ERA, 259 FIP, through five starts with the Rangers. He's already... (laughs) In in five starts with the Rangers, he's already produced more f war than he did in 19 starts with the Mets this season. So that, that tells you how that's going. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know if there's much more for me, at least, to say on this one other than, hey, it lined up pretty perfectly despite everything going on with Scherzer with some injuries, his age, his contract, his performance this season. And that's, that's a big win.
1: Totally. So, yeah, I got nothing else to say on that either other than, yeah, looks good.
0: Sweet, and let's also go through the Verlander trade then, which is, as I mentioned, much more complicated because of uh, that option that he had. And so we we had some internal discussions about how to handle this option. Um, basically, it, it's a 35 million vesting option for 2025, where if he reaches 140 innings pitched in 2024, that vests and becomes a player option. And so that's a lot. There's a lot riding on that, right? Where that season he would be 42 years old and all it takes is 140 innings which in the grand scheme of things really isn't that much for a guy like verlander and so even if he's like middle of the rotation you figure he could hit that 140 mark and then you have like this fully underwater 35 million dollar season as as a 42 year old so there's a lot of risk kind of hold up there um We weren't sure exactly how to handle it, what we leaned on, what we landed on for at least the value that we showed on the site was omitting that player option, just assuming that, hey, if he's bad or he's hurt, his team will be able to manipulate his innings, you know, either he'll be injured and on the injured list, or maybe he spends some time in the bullpen, skip some starts, whatever, they'll be able to manipulate his innings to make sure that option doesn't vest, and yes, maybe there's an opportunity for a grievance there, but grievances, typically are not won by the players and you know if if we're talking about 35 million dollars it's worth the risk uh, of risking that grievance at least you if you're a team i think you would view it that way and so that's what we kind of landed on and so we had his value on the site at negative 11 but if you go ahead and calculate out at the time that uh, 2024 or excuse me that 2025 value for verlander against the 35 million surplus it brings his total surplus value over the life of the contract down to negative 33.8 so those are the kind of the two numbers you're looking at for verlander Uh, the way they got this deal done the mets and astros did was making the dollar amount heading to houston conditional so it's 35 million dollars if he does not if that option does not vest and he does not exercise the player option so it's 11 million for verlander plus 35 or negative 11 million for verlander plus 35 million in cash which comes out to math is hard 24 <laughs> 24 million in surplus in positive surplus so that's in scenario A where the option does not vest if the option does vest we have him at negative 33.8 and they would actually be sending additional cash to cover the vesting option to cover part of the vesting option so 52.5 million in cash so you take out the negative 33.8 And you are left with 18.7 in surplus. And regardless, whichever scenario you are left with, um, it's a fair deal. In exchange, the Astros gave up two outfielders, Drew Gilbert at 13.1 and Ryan Clifford at 7.8. So regardless of which scenario happens here, it ends up being even. There's about 20-ish in surplus going each direction.
1: Yeah, because it kind of splits the difference, yeah, depending on how that works out, yeah. Right. So, this, yeah. is a,
0: this is a lot easier to, uh, to understand if you're looking at it in writing. It's probably not the best <laughs> for an audio format here. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the takeaway that the amount of cash that they're, they're sending is conditional on whether this option vests. And regardless of how you look at it, it comes out to about 20-ish in surplus. And that's about how much the Mets got in these two outfield prospects. So it's an even yeah. deal.
1: Yeah, so um, after the Scherzer trade, I was a guest on the Robbie Hyde YouTube show. Robbie's a friend of ours uh, or a big supporter of ours, and we love Robbie as well. Um, so I'm sometimes a guest on his show. And so he was playing around before the, uh, after the Scherzer deal, but before the Verlander deal when there was rumors of it. He's saying, "Okay, like, what what would the Astros have to give up?" And and we using our at the time minus eleven estimate, you know, oh, let's, let's plug in some numbers, and he plugged in exactly pretty much the the numbers that we get, and figured out it would be like, yeah, that's probably going to be Gilbert and Clifford, <laughs> and that's exactly how it worked out. So that's gratifying to see. Um, yeah, and you know, I I think looking beyond that from the Mets' perspective, it's really i think notable that they pivoted and once they decided to pivot we're 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 very clear about it we're like okay we're changing direction we know these two overpaid guys are still still have some gas in the tank but they're older and in decline and they wanted to get younger um I don't think it's so much about being cheap, necessarily, of getting, like, you know, pre arm players. I think it's about, like, they wanted to strike a balance between, you know, old and young and kind of guys on the ascent versus guys on the descent. And so getting prospects like Acuna, Clifford, and Gilbert kind of fits where they want to go. And I gotta hand it to them for for being you know decisive about it and and they did a good job and you know Steve Cohen obviously has a has a stock trading background, and as you know in general he knows to cut his losses you know he's been doing it for years, so he doesn't lose any sleep over like he understands the concept of of sunk cost, so he knows he has to pay these guys anyway, so what he's decided is well, if I'm going to pay these guys anyway, I might as well you know make it more advantageous for the future direction of my team so He's basically making a cocky decision that, you know, it's better to have the young guys than the old guys for the same amount of money, which I applaud.
0: Yeah, and what we've really seen from, we saw him, you know, take the big aggressive splash when he first took over the team, right? It's kind of the AJ Preller uh, jerry depoto like let's let's just throw all our chips in and see what happens and then you see these folks kind of learn from that and it doesn't always go exactly the way they hoped and they maybe have to walk it back and find more of a balance and that's kind of the steps that we're in with cohen where he can either spend 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 like those like 2010s yankees and just obliterate the league and payroll and deal with the repercussions that comes with that or he can model things after the late 2010s, 2020s Dodgers of spending all the money in the world, but doing it smartly and mixing in these top tier talents, you know, a Will Smith or a Corey Seager when he's under team control. Players like that where they're really, you know, they're, they're really the, the true core of the team is these young, homegrown, developed players that you get their prime years and then you're supplanting them complimenting them supplanting is not the right word <laughs> you're complimenting them with these big free agents and some of them could be those stars of a Mookie Betts where he's right up and I know he wasn't signed as the free agent but just for all intents and purposes with the big contract that he's on uh, but a Mookie Betts a Freddie Freeman like these guys can still be superstars they can still lead your team but you got those guys you're pairing them with with the younger core players and then you're also adding in these kind of complimentary pieces of a Justin Turner signing him for a while of um, what other free agents have the <laughs> the Dodgers signed? Uh, they, ha- they haven't been quite as JD active Martinez. on the free. Yes, J.D. Martinez. Um, players like that where they, they fill up the lineup and, you know, they're maybe not a superstar, but they're a high talented player. They're going to produce for you and they might cost A handful of million dollars and and because you're steve cohen you can afford to splurge on that guy on top of the superstars and on top of the young star talent that you have so it's kind of it's taking the best of all worlds really is what the dodgers have been able to do and i think the mets are looking at that unfortunately given the current the the way the mets were constituted heading into this season this is what was needed for them to get there right they were never going to be able to get to that spot without making some hard decisions like these without eating some of the contract and moving on, moving on from two of their bigger name acquisitions in Verlander and Scherzer but operating under that that you know assumption that like hey this kind of needed to happen to reset the team a little bit and get it closer to what they're looking at closer to that Dodgers model I think they did really well I think you know hat tip to obviously obviously Cohen was a big part of like getting them to this kind of spot in the first place you know he made some mistakes to get here but hat tip to him for being able to recognize those mistakes and not like doubling down on them and and like like you were saying like he's a finance guy he understands sunk cost rather than pushing more into it like i hate to i hate to make the direct comparison because it really is apples and oranges but rather than like pushing deeper into the hole like the angels ended up doing um he's cutting his losses he's paying to get out of these deals and in return he's making his team better in the long run without you know he's not mortgaging the short run either we'll talk about Pete Alonso I mean we can do that now if we want but there were some rumors that Pete Alonso was considered at the deadline and the Cubs and Brewers were interested and he didn't end up making that move I I think I think Cohen figures that, you know, there were some mixed reports. Apparently he told Scherzer that 2024 was also going to be a down year for the Mets. And I think we can, we'll have to see how that one goes because they still have a lot of talent in place there. Um, but I think holding on to Pete Alonso is at least partially an indicator that like they're, they're going to reevaluate in the off season and see what it looks like. See if it looks like, okay, we're going to try again in 2024, or if it looks like we're going to take one gap year and really be like all guns blaring for 2025 when a guy like Acuna and Gilbert and Clifford when those guys are like closer to the big leagues along with their young talent that they already have you know the Brett Beatys and Ronnie Mauricios and maybe Mark Vientos if he ever figures it out like these young guys are going to be coming into their own you're going to figure out what's wheat what's chaff and have a much better idea of this is our young core these are our Will Smiths our Corey Seegers our Cody Bellinger's and these are the positions we need to address around them to build a contender, let's go spend and make trades to do it. I think that's that's the end goal here, and whether that is happening this upcoming offseason, or whether they take another year off, they trade a Pete Alonso and, and really push for 2025, that, that remains to be seen. But it's clear that that's the end goal for Cohen, and again, I tip my cap to him for having the guts to to make these tough decisions whereas a lot of teams might have just stood pat or or even added to a losing team like this one
1: yeah in some ways i think it's might it may be a little bit easier from a fan base perspective to trade guys you signed as free agents because they were never guys you developed as part of your core like verlander was never really a met you know was a met for a few months right so it's not like the fan base fell in love with them for years right scherzer was a met for a year and a half so you know you can kind of cut your losses with those kind of mercenary type guys a little bit easier than you could look like a pete Alonso with a kind of a homegrown star um so so that that's one point but you know the other thing you touched on was OK, you can't just buy a championship, right? George Steinbrenner kind of sort of did that in the 70s. But when you study those teams, you realize there was more, you know, young developed players than perhaps the mythology sort of allows for. Um, the and, and, you know, every now and then a new owner comes in and says, yeah, I'm going to buy a championship or acts like it and Steve Cohen did, only to realize you can't really do that. Um, Artie Moreno of the Angels has obviously made a lot of mistakes by overpaying and not getting in championships. So the the lesson is very clear. You have to develop your own young stars and then augment with, with you know, free agents. So um, I think Cohen has taken that to heart and and it's more proof of that. One sort of interesting sort of comparison is actually right across town with the Yankees who basically have a bunch of overpaid old (laughs) stars on decline and not much of a core. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting a lot of criticism and having a terrible year of that because they've basically, you know, outside of judge who obviously is productive, you've got sort of dead weight with Stanton and LeMahieu and Rizzo, all these guys that are sort of overpaid and on the decline and your team is falling apart. So they're in a really bad place, oddly enough. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how they sort of pivot from here.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I think that's probably my piece on the Mets and on these two deals. And we can maybe I have a a short list of other notes here that I wrote down on deadline day as like let's talk about this on the next podcast. And the next podcast ended up being almost a month later. Um, so let's see <laughs> what I remember from these notes and if I still feel the same. Uh, it's kind of interesting thought exercise here. Um, I guess we touched on them a bit there, so let's just talk Padres real quick. Um. My immediate deadline reaction was that the Padres didn't do enough. It was weird, like... And that's that's weird to say for AJ Preller, right? That he, you know, maybe got cold feet or, or didn't push his chips in all the way. Um, at the deadline, the Padres were a team that, like the Mets, had really underperformed despite everything that was invested in the team. But what the Padres had going for them was, A, what looked like a much more winnable division. And with that, B much better playoff odds than the pod or than the Mets. Um, and, And part of that's just that their base runs record, like it looked like they were getting really unlucky. They still have not won an extra innings game this year, which is insane. They perform really poorly in one run games. And typically that's seen as luck as variance. And so you figure second half of the season, if that evens out a little bit, then they're right in it with, with a team like the D backs going for the wild card unfortunately that has not happened post deadline um and i think part of what kind of set them up for that to not happen is they really only dip their toes in the water when it comes to their deadline moves um roster is not pulling up for me right now but uh they they their big quote-unquote big trade that they made at the deadline was getting rich hill and gmon Choi and giving up a few like somewhat interesting prospects to do it which was a really odd deal like nothing is wrong at all with trading for rich hill in fact i will applaud any major league baseball team that trades for rich hill at any time uh, <laughs> but it was a bit weird to give up like legitimate talent like they give up outfielder estuar suero and left-handed pitcher jackson wolf Where like neither of these guys are superstars but suero's at 3.4 wolf was at 2.2 and the total package of hill and Choi came out to positive 0.3 like almost almost like replacement like like almost just a a flat value there and so it was a bit weird to see them up give up quite that much for these guys who really look more like role players than like impact trade deadline acquisitions like you figure if they were you figure if if the padres decided you know we don't want to go all in because of the spot we're in in the standings let's just make some fringe additions like some cheap ones see if we can make some upgrades um, and squeak into the playoffs here with some, like, natural regression, you you would think that they would give up lesser talents than than those. And maybe this is nitpicking, and Preller has a decent track record of, you know, he'll trade away a Patino, who flames out and has no major league career, but he'll hang on to a Jackson Merrill, who looks like he's going to be a really special talent. Um, Obviously, those guys are we haven't seen what's going on with merrill yet he hasn't made his big league debut there's still time for him to flame out but it seems like preller has a decent track record of knowing which guys to trade and which guys to keep and so maybe this is just another case of that um but that trade at least caught me a little off guard as like really they're they're giving up these pieces and they they did make a couple other moves like right at the buzzer they picked up scott barlow from the royals in what i thought was a pretty good move and Picked up Garrett Cooper and Sean Reynolds from the Marlins in, again, what I thought was a pretty good move. And that one, all they gave up was Ryan Weathers, who we had at zero as like a flamed out prospect. But still, it seemed weird for them to give up a few legitimate prospects across these deals, which Henry Williams in that Barlow deal and then the two names in the Hill and Choi deal and really not add a whole lot and really just ultimately be, ultimately be left in the same spot that they were. So that was, that was my Padres takeaway was like, they should have been either. I'm not saying all in or all out, but they should have been more firmly in or more firmly out. Or if they're going to stay on the fringes, actually hang on to these prospects with value and just give up like the real fringe guys.
1: Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Um, it's, it's surprising because Preller, it usually is black or white. He's usually all in or all out, right? He's not a shades of gray kind of guy, but this was shades of gray. Um, yeah. So that's hard to cover yet. I mean, you know, if you look at it, you know, you've only got a year of control of Soto after this. And so you've got Soto in his prime. You've got Snell having a great year. Who's going to be a free agent after this hater doing his thing, going to be free agent after this. So your window is now. And so you would think that, and and they had some, you know, you could have made a case that you know, if they just splurged a little bit, they could have really made a push. Uh, they had some holes in their lineup, holes in their rotation, holes in their bullpen. They had some things to do. Now, to be fair, the market was weird. There weren't a lot of impact players. Well, you know, when, especially when Sotani was taken off the block. You know, um, I don't remember if there were rumors that they were involved in any sort of other sort of big name like Scherzer, Verlander types. Um, but I think what they probably faced was Slim Pickens, right? And, you know, it's like, okay, what's left? Um, like, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't put past I wouldn't put it past Preller to trade one of his big name prospects, a Jackson Merrill or even an Ethan Salas. But the you know, but the question is, those guys are so highly valued. You know, what are you going to get for them? So you can't really, unless it's Otani who was taken off the market. Then you're down to, like, marginal guys for marginal prospects. And, he, and he, so you could say maybe, okay, he tends to overpay here and there. And so you overpaid a little bit for, eh, role players. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say. There's prob- There probably wasn't much to get, I guess is what I'm saying. So therefore, he didn't have to give that much. Um, and he gave a little bit more than he should have for the guys he got. Um, it's weird, I know, but that's all I can figure.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's... Again, these aren't. It's not like he did trade a Salas for. I guess. I guess just pulling an example up. Obviously, this is a different case. But if you traded a Salas in like some weird deal for Savali or for um, or for Eduardo Rodriguez, and that's all that he did, I think I'd have. I'd be much more critical of it. Of like that's really like your your foot is halfway in the water, but you're not going all the way in. Like that. That seems like. A poor choice but since it was more of these like i don't I, I guess my my quibble is that instead of giving up the true fringe guys you traded three guys with like legitimately a little bit of value um but that, that's not you know that, that, that's that's my quibble that's not a massive concern of oh my goodness what are you doing with this team aj you gave up these future stars jackson wolf and <laughs> and uh the other guys whose names I've already forgotten. Henry Williams, <laughs> I think, was one of them. Um, that's that's not what I'm saying. So I, I think it's just a nitpick more than anything else, that like, hey, if you're gonna make the marginal additions, maybe give up more marginal guys. But if this if this was the cost of these marginal additions and they decided that they're internally not too high on these guys, then not not worth making a big deal about, I guess.
1: Okay. I guess. Um,
0: Moving on to my next note here, what I have is Dodgers, Yankees, and Twins are like the deadline losers, and I know that's always like a trendy thing to pick is the winners and losers of the deadline, winners and losers of the offseason. Um, I'm going to start with the Dodgers. I I think it's okay to, especially with, especially with the benefit of hindsight and knowing what we know about what happened with Eduardo Rodriguez um, and knowing how good Lynn and Kelly have been it might not be totally fair to call them losers. Um, it seems like they're they're rolling pretty well right now. They're they have a comfortable lead in the division, which they could not say for most of the season. Um, so losers is probably a bit harsh. I still think it's a bit ridiculous that they didn't have a fallback plan for Eduardo Rodriguez. Like they knew they knew he had some off off field complications, and I don't mean to. Label that in any kind of like negative light. I know a lot of people were really critical of Rodriguez himself and upset with him for staying in Detroit and exercising the no trade. We don't know anything about what his off-field issues have been the last couple years. I think there was a rumor that it was something with marital issues. Um, Nothing more than that that I've seen, so I don't want to speculate on what that was. And I don't want to say that he did something bad or that it was you know something that reflects poorly on him versus just like hey sometimes these things happen um and if it was just like a like a hey things were a little bit rocky then yeah maybe it's not the best thing for (laughs) for your marriage and for your family to move across the country out of nowhere for an extended period of time like i i get that that's that's defensible these guys are playing baseball for a career and just because they don't want to get relocated without their consent like that's that's a defensible thing to want i think as a as a human being and not just like an object that we watch throw a baseball um so i don't want i don't want to get too deep into that aspect of it necessarily but if you're the dodgers and you know that the guy has a no trade clause and you know that the guy is dealing with something on the side how do you not have a fallback plan how do you not have a plan b of let's go Maybe you don't have a deal like fully lined up, but you have some advanced discussions, and you say, "Hey, we can pivot to a Jack Flaherty or whoever as this is our fallback guy. We're gonna go. We still need a rotation arm, even if we can't get a guy as talented as Eduardo Rodriguez. We need something there because right now that rotation's looking really, really thin. Uh, they just lost Tony Gonsolin for probably the rest of the season. Um, Bueller's still not expected back anytime soon. Dustin May's out for a long time." Clayton Kershaw's back now, but we'll see how long that lasts. Like, you can't count on him to stay healthy throughout the remainder of the season and postseason and be effective in the postseason. Uh, Julio Arias is not having a great year. Gavin Stone is taking the ball regularly for them, and it hasn't gone well so far. So, you really would have felt better with one more reliable arm even if it is along the like lance lynn lines of like this guy's going to eat innings and we hope we can fix something but if not at least he's going to eat innings like i feel like they really could have used a guy like that and the fact that they didn't had had them as like a gut reaction loser for me from the deadline
1: well especially if you compare them to what the rangers did for example um so the rangers you know one could argue that um yes they needed one pitcher but they traded for two they traded for not only Scherzer, but George Montgomery, because they were thinking ahead. And that actually had the effect of bouncing, I think it was Martin Perez, to the bullpen. So you could say that they actually have six starters, but they were being proactive by saying, yes, we're going to need arms as much as possible. And so looking at that, you could say the Dodgers probably should have traded for, you know, Savali or Montgomery, their own version of that kind of guy who's, you know, maybe not a top of the rotation guy, but a reliable number three, let's say. Um and they could have used them. So, yeah. On the other hand, I mean, they've been cycling through, you know, some young guys, the Bobby Millers, the Sheehan's. I mean, yeah, I get that you don't want to push those guys too much too soon. And so um, you can't really rely on them, especially in a playoff push. Um, so, yeah, I, I do agree with you. They could probably have used one more starter. Um, the other thing you might – but that I found curious was the whole Syndergaard-Rosario deal. Like they kept saying, and the Kike Hernandez deal, by the way. Like they kept saying they need right-handed bats, and they get like two of the worst performers of the year, and they're sort of making hay with them. But I mean, like that's the best you could do. I don't know.
0: Yeah, they had a weird, weird <laughs> deadline, and and to this point, hey, it's worked out. And even even if Kike Hernandez and and Ahmed Rosario aren't impact players for them, which I don't think we expected them to be, and I don't think they expected them to be. Uh, but even if they aren't like the impact that Lynn and Kelly have already made and will seemingly continue to make is like good on you guys. That that was a good trade. You right, you nailed a, it. You yeah. brought in two impact players. Just surprised they couldn't do one more. And we'll see if it bites them. Like right now, right now they're lined up okay. If they were to to start a playoff series, right? You can go Kershaw julio or Ur- you can go kershaw lynn urias and bobby miller as your playoff rotation and feel reasonably good about it you know no team's gonna feel great about their rotation it seems going into the playoffs just because of the way guys have gotten hurt and underperformed this year and how valuable starting pitching still is um but i think you can feel good about that it's just okay but what happens if we lose any of those guys between now and then then it's a pretty steep drop off and so you would expect them to have accounted for that, and they really tried to with the Rodriguez deal. I just uh, thought they'd have a fallback in place.
1: I mean, the fallback was Ryan Yarborough. I mean, come on. I know it's Ryan Yarborough, <laughs> but he's going to save you some arms, right? He's an easy-eater yeah. kind of guy, right? So just to kind of, yeah, save arms for the for the playoff run. Yeah.
0: Uh, the next team I have down, and I honestly don't want to spend too much time on this because I'm sure we'll talk about them ad nauseum going into the off season, but the Yankees uh what a bizarre deadline for them they were in this like buy sell position because they've been so miserable this season and they had a couple guys that you'd figure might have a little interest a, a Harrison Bader or even like an Isaiah Kiner-Falefa would fit with someone I'm sure um a couple of relievers that they could have moved. And instead they made one trade, well, two trades. They had a Keenan Middleton and like a waiver cash deal for Spencer Howard. And I don't think that made yeah. a ton of sense. Like like they didn't give up a ton, but like they definitely are not a good enough team that that would be, you know, Hey, we'll get Keenan Middleton and this guy, this guy, this guy will click and we'll be in the playoffs. And that is absolutely not how it has played out either they are 62 and 67 they are 19 games back in the division 0.2 playoff odds they're out of it um this is just a, a messy baseball team a, a poorly constructed baseball team as it looks from from this perspective and we're starting to hear rumblings of changes in the coaching staff and the front office um something something's gonna change here in in the coming months i i figure we don't need to get too deep into it today but uh, weird yeah. weird decisions at the deadline, and they're in a weird position going forward.
1: Yeah, that's a big topic, yes, for another day. But just to kind of talk about your deadline point. Yeah, they were half-hearted about, like, I don't think they ever really got off the fence. Are we buyers or are we sellers? I don't think they had it in them to be sellers because, hey, we're the Yankees. And they, like, totally were in denial about whether they still had a shot. And so they made what it – Two very non-impactful deals, right? And so, um, now the other sort of thing you could argue is they didn't really have much to trade, even if they did decide to be sellers. You know, nobody wants the bloated contracts of Stanton or LeMayhew, for example. Um, Severino's been awful this year. I mean, you know, there's, you know, they're really, when you look at everything from a surplus value standpoint, there's really not much to trade. Uh, Glaboratora's has some value around 10 or 11. Um, Bader maybe a little bit, um, so there's really not much you could have gotten, you know. Even if you did decide to sell, it's not like you had a whole lot of chips, you know. So, um, so yeah, they they just sort of like hemmed and hot and end up being kind of sort of a maybe buyer. But it was, you know, look. The good news is they didn't trade any big prospects or anything. Um, the bad news is they're kind of stuck in this weird sort of no man's land where. They've got <clears throat> too many bloated contracts, two guys on you know, that are older and in decline, like I said earlier. And, you know, they've got to see if the young guys can step up. And so that's what they're doing now. To their credit, they brought up Pereira. They brought up finally Peraza again. Um, they got to see what they got, maybe some of the young pitchers. Um, so, but it's going to be a weird transition. And it's going to be weird for Yankee culture to kind of stomach. Like, uh, I don't see a rebuild happening, but how else are they going to do it? And like I said, you can't really trade some of the bloated contracts unless you do what Cohen did and kick in a bunch of money. That's what they probably should do, but uh, they're not there yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I have some other thoughts, but I'll save them for the future. Um, The last team I had down as losers were the Twins. And they had a lot of options that they could have done. They have this glut of left-handed hitting outfielders. They have a... Surprisingly, like one of the best rotations in Twins history, but it's also got a couple guys in it, Kenta Maeda and Sonny Gray, who will be free agents after the season. So you figured the market is starved for starting pitching. Maybe they can flip one of those guys to address other needs. And they had some concerns in the bullpen. And the only move that they made to address any of that was swapping Jorge Lopez for Dylan Floro, which I think was a pretty good move. I I liked it at the time and still do like it for them. But it's just weird that that was it. And so I, I totally get with, you know, the outfield situation. I get it if they wanted to give it some time to breathe and figure out what they have. Um, Matt Wallner has been impressive for them in a short stint. Uh, Max Kepler has continued to just be a very perplexing player. I don't think anybody has a great grasp of how good he is. Um, and then Kirilov and Trevor Larnach have been up and down through the minors and in the majors they've been on and off the injured list. And so maybe you want to give it the rest of the season. See what you're looking at going into the off season, and then address that glut how you're going to. I think that's defensible. And I also think it's a little bit defensible, you know, let's keep our strength the strength. Let's keep this rotation six deep. We can move a guy to the bullpen later if we have to. Right now they're starting Dallas Keuchel on regular rotation turns and We'll see if that continues throughout the rest of the season or if he gets cut because he's Dallas Keuchel. Um, but it's really it's weird that they didn't do something, right? It's weird that they didn't add another solid reliever when it seemed like they were going fairly cheap and they have a decent enough farm system they could have gotten a deal done. Uh, it's weird that they didn't add some sort of offensive depth. I mean, they have kind of a crowded offensive situation and it's a lot of guys that they really need to just turn it around and start performing like they would. Uh, like like you'd expect them to, but there was certainly room there for an impact bat at some position. Granted, there weren't too many impact bats available on the market, so maybe that's not as strong of an argument there, but it just seemed like they they stood pat for the most part with what has been a pretty disappointing team. And just because they play in the AL Central and their main competitors, the Guardians, actively got worse at the deadline... Like, that makes it fine that they stood pat in one sense. They're still, like, almost locked to win the division. But you'd figure a team that just committed as much money as it did to Carlos Correa um, would be a little bit more, not necessarily all-in, but they'd be a bit more mindful of, like, hey, winning the Central isn't enough. Like, we need a team that's going to be good enough to win in the playoffs. And I don't think currently constructed, they're quite there. I think they could have made moves to make themselves look a lot better and chose not to.
1: I mean, yeah. Okay, <laughs> So, yeah, they basically know that the Yale Central is being handed to them, right? Um, and if you take the old Billy Bean sort of crapshoot for the playoffs or a crapshoot idea, you could say all, all they have to do is be in it and, you know, they got a shot, right? Um, now their odds to win the World Series are 3.5%, which is not that, you know, they're a little bit higher than the Blue Jays and a little bit, lower than the orioles at 4.9 i mean nobody's a lock to to win the world series so and you know the phillies got hot they were the sixth seed last year so you could argue that all you have to do is get in there and you got a shot right but i also think that front office is smart and sensible and said okay um we don't know that we have like the you know, super team. Um, so maybe we shouldn't act like we have a super team. Maybe it's not a matter of like getting an impact bat. And when you look at the market, there wasn't a whole lot available. The best they got was picking up Jordan Lovewell and waivers because they wanted a right-handed bat. You know, and he's said, uh, just checked his splits. He's at 96 WRC plus, so slightly below average as a right-hander hitting lefties. So it's not like he's got an impact there. So yes, I agree. Yes, they, they did basically nothing. Um, but I guess the question I'm wondering is, what what was there for them? I don't know. Like, what made the most sense for them, given their circumstances? You know, they're a, they're a gimme for the Yale Central. And then, okay, you know, what's going to really move the needle on their World Series chances? Uh, at what cost? So I think they've, they probably sort of work through all these and, like, I don't know if what's available is any better than what we already have. And so I'm not sure they were losers because I'm not sure there was much they could do.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I would have liked to see a better, <laughs> you know, a better right-handed outfield solution than Jordan Lupplow. Like, even Tommy Pham, who's been pretty solid for the D-backs, like, he would have been a good fit here, I think. Um, And I would have liked to see another reliever, like, a, a solid guy they could really trust because it's looking a little bit thin back there um it's not it's not terrible but it's it's looking a little thin um and i, I guess i guess the other argument you can make is y- yes like you're saying like they just need to make in make it into the playoffs and they know they're no matter what moves they made at the deadline they're not gonna have a super team so let's roll with what we have more or less make the playoffs and see what happens and then go into the off season where they're going to lose Joey Gallo. I don't know if that's a huge loss for them since he's been kind of whatever this season, like pretty much a league average bat. Um, but as I mentioned before, they're going to lose Sonny Gray and Kenta at to free agency. And so if you're looking at that and you say, well, then we're left with three starters, Pablo Lopez, Joe Ryan, Bailey Ober, we're going to need to make some sort of a move to address that. Maybe they don't want to trade any prospects or any of that outfield contingent now when they might need those guys in the offseason to trade for a controllable starting pitcher to replace one or one or both of those sunny gray and kenta maeda so maybe that's the way they're looking at it and if so like i get it i get it if you are looking more toward like as you are contending and as you are going to win the the al central you can still be looking a bit more toward the future a bit more toward 2024 and thinking ahead to your future needs but at some point they got to they got to push some chips in like they they've been kind of in this you know hey we're good enough to win the central like that's that's kind of been their their thing for the last <laughs> yeah. few years yeah and when and we've seen in a couple of those years that it didn't work out that way you know on paper they were good enough to win the central but last year they didn't last year they really disappointed and this year they're kind of middling as well and Carlos Correa needs to start hitting that would really help them a lot um at some point though they they need to push right they they can't just be the team that's good enough to win the central that that if their if their window is right now while Correa is in his theoretical prime years and they're getting some of these young players you know Royce Lewis is hitting well for them when he's healthy and Matt Wallner looks solid and Edward Julien is excellent um if if their window is right now then you'd, you'd want to start seeing them act like it
1: that's fair I think the biggest impact they could have is to your point, Carlos Correa starts hitting. I don't know what's going on with him, but uh that's not good. Uh he's your star, he should be your leader. He's won World Series before, he's been a superstar before. He's clearly not having that kind of year. So that would whatever's going on with him, if they could fix him, that would be the biggest change of all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, last note I have down here is that I think this offseason is going to be kind of nuts um, I did not add any other context to that note so I'm kind of speculating as to as to why I wrote that down on uh, August 1st but um, I guess my, my mindset is there's a lot of teams that were kind of on the bubble this deadline and kind of stayed that way you know you, you had a team like the White Sox where they faced the unfortunate reality and went ahead and sold and like they picked their direction you figure they have a couple pieces on that team still that could be traded you know a dylan cease especially and so maybe that comes this off season or next deadline um but then there's other teams you know the reds or the padres or the guardians even where these teams didn't go all in in either direction and you figure you give them two more months of clarity to kind of pick their direction and they're going to pick it And this offseason. We might see some more movement. So the Reds, it's, it's fairly obvious. They have the young core that came up. They didn't want to like overspend right now. They're kind of in the spot that the Orioles were in last year where it's like, oh, we're ready like a year early do we want to push some chips in and and take advantage or do we want to like stick to the plan and stick to our original timeline and and we'll we'll maybe push a little harder next year and and they very clearly went with that approach that Orioles approach and hey it's worked out it's worked wonders for Baltimore so far so um, that's the spot the Reds are in you'd expect them to be a bit more aggressive in the offseason than they were at the deadline just adding Sam Mole so that's that's maybe an easy one the guardians are in this weird spot they don't really have much to sell off even if they decided to sell more pieces so i think they are going to be um you know conservative buyers Uh, the padres are a big wild card you'd expect them to try to win but who knows you know i i did have the mariners in this category but then they went ahead and lit themselves on fire and now they're gonna win the west (laughs) or at least they're they're currently leading the west um as far as like other bubble teams go, I guess you could argue the Tigers if you squint or, you know, the giants are in kind of this weird gray area. The D backs you'd expect to get a little more aggressive. The Cardinals are going to try and add some pitching. The Cubs are in a weird spot. The pirates are like, there's a whole lot of these teams where they are in this kind of band of like within five or seven games of 500 and, need to pick a direction and 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 stick with it and maybe at the deadline they're less likely to pick a direction because hey we don't want to go all in or all out let's play the rest of the season out and see where things go but i think this off season we're going to see some lines drawn in the sand we're going to see some more significant moves especially with the way that the free agent market is looking where there's a lot of pitching available and not a lot of hitting I think we'll have to see teams. Well, we'll see teams having to get creative, maybe make trades between contenders, something along the lines of the the Pablo Lopez, Luis Ariz deal from last off season, where you see a couple hopeful contenders just swapping position of strength with position of need. And yeah, I, I think we'll have an active off season. Is kind of my yeah. conclusion there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the other trend I would see is um, we're going to start to see some teams unlock. Prospects. So there's been a lot of prospect hoarding. I'm thinking about the Orioles in particular. They've got they've got a really strong young team, and but they've got a whole bunch of other guys on the farm that are bubbling up. Like they can't have everybody on their roster, right? So they were in the they're kind of in the position the Padres were in a couple of years ago, and everybody knew they were bursting at the seams, and so they started trading a bunch of prospects to get to that next level. I think the Orioles are going to do something like that because they just you know the cash is burning a hole in their pocket. So. um they are prospect rich. Um, depending on what the, I mean, the Rays are pretty consistent with their model, though. Though, you know, there'll be some turnover there. Um, I do think the, um, you know, everyone sort of models themselves after the Dodgers, who are, have kind of the best of all worlds. They've got a continuously contending MLB team. They've got budget and they've got a strong farm, like you've got all three tanks cooking at once, and that's what everybody the Mets included wanna want a model, so to the extent that everyone compares them themselves to that, you know they'll they'll try to fix that um so the Mets are going that direction um I do think um there's question marks with a team like the Marlins, like you can never f- figure out are they the upswing or are they not on the upswing are they just going for it this year are they like i can't figure where they're at in the cycle like if you think about things in terms of up and down cycles with the small market teams it's pretty clear you've got you know your up cycle and then you can't and then you sort of peak and then you rebuild like the a's have been doing or the nationals um so those guys are very clear um but then you've got these weird but the giants are another one you mentioned where like you're neither here nor there like i can't quite place where they're going so i think the first thing would be to kind of figure out which direction everybody's going and then to your point okay then we'll start to see the movement you know from that
0: right right well cool uh that's that's the notes i had down from the deadline uh, i don't know if you have anything else you want to touch on if you want to get have anything else you want to say about this pete alonzo rumor or if you want to move on to the Last bits of news we have.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to touch on Alonzo, I'm not surprised by it because after this year, he's only got one year of control left. Um, and so there's a big question of whether he's going to stay or go. Um, because, you know, if if he's going to go, then you might as well trade him now while he has some value. Uh, sometimes people look at our model and are surprised by, you know, the number they see next to him. His surplus isn't that high because A, he's a first baseman, and so there's not a lot of defensive value in that. B, um, You know, he's one of these sort of power hitters that hits for low average. Like, he's not totally a complete hitter. And so he's never going to be, like, one of these high WRC plus guys. He basically relies on home runs. And three, because he relies on home runs, his ARB cost got expensive early. You know, and so he's being paid a lot of money. And so when you look at his ARB three salary projection, he's going to be pretty close, you know, close-ish. You know, there's still some circles there, but not a lot for one year of a of a one-trick pony first baseman. So, yeah, they're not going to get a whole lot for him is what I'm trying to say. Uh, not as much as you might think. He's not going to break the farm or anything. So and, – and the rumor I saw with um, – as reported with the Brewers was that, you know – they were talking like one of the Brewers' top five prospects, but you can sort of see, well, that wouldn't be Jackson Churio, who's got like a 70 on our model, and then they're going to go down there. Like The fifth prospect is more in line with what Alonzo's value would be. So it's probably going to be something like that if he does get moved. Obviously, the other option is to extend him, which they might do. He's a fan favorite. Um But so that's going to be a topic of the off-season, uh, which we don't totally have to dig into now. But I'm not surprised that he was in the rumors for those reasons.
0: Yeah, I, I think... I mean, it really depends, like, how Cohen is viewing this, how his, what his ideal budget is throughout all of this. Because I could see an argument that, like, he paid down Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer to get, like, maybe not elite prospects, but, like, really, really good prospects. Like, these aren't just your fringe, like, two to four million, whatever, we we got what we could kind of guys. These are, like, guys who rank in the top 10 or 15 of the Mets system and are going to be viewed as like an actual part of the future like they might be regular players in a couple of years for them and if you're not going to get a guy like that for Alonso, then why not lock him up to a you know a, a league uh excuse me a, a market rate extension where yeah you're not going to get a lot of surplus there and maybe on the back end of the deal you're even in the negative which is what we typically expect from contracts like this but like you said he's a fan favorite he's a pretty consistent producer. Like you're right. He's not going to light up the war leader boards or even WRC plus because he's a little bit limited, but he's solid. He's consistent. He's a sure bet for 35 plus homers a year. And like that has a place, you know, even if it's not, if he's not a sabermetric darling of like, look at all these ways he produces value, like still a good hitter and he's going to be a good hitter for a few years. So why not lock that guy up? Boom. You got first base covered for the next few years and all it costs you is money and the opportunity cost of like an okay-ish prospect. Like I I think, I think that makes sense if you are Steve Cohen and you're playing with monopoly money. Um, But maybe he has a a more realistic target budget that he wants to stay under and and maybe an extension for Alonzo puts him into a spot he's uncomfortable and might not be as comfortable adding an elite talent in the future at like a higher AAV. So like, obviously we aren't privy to that but i i could see the argument for let's just let's just keep him around if we're not going to get much for him the fans like him and he produces so why
1: not yeah exactly and i will say his defense has gotten better he's in the 62nd percentile with odds of average at first which i know first is first but still he used to be when he first came up kind of a kind of ham-fisted over there and he's gotten better
0: yeah yeah definitely all right we are running out of time here so I'll just quick hit through these last few notes. Um the White Sox fired Ken Williams and Rick Hahn and it's always odd with the timing of moves like these. Um you know they they just orchestrated all of these deadline moves and theoretically traded for like the White Sox future core or or members of the White Sox future core and then I said, "All right, thanks for your service. See you later." Um it, it's it's tough to really time things out like this like when when you're going to can the two baseball ops guys because the team isn't performing well like there's never a great time to do it like you can't fire them in may and then hire your future guys and have them running the deadline like other operations executives that you would want to take over the team aren't available until the off season either way so it's like well do we Do we let the guys who have gotten us to this point, but at least have experience and and some trust around the league? Do we let them handle the deadline or do we fire them and hand it to, you know, the next in line after them and hope things go okay? Um, Which is a tough, tough question. I I don't think I can make an argument either way for it without knowing much more about like the specifics and, and everything involved. But it makes sense that that these guys were on the hot seat and that these guys lost their jobs. Just seeing as like the white Sox were heralded as like, look at this team with this impressive youth and this impressive core. And they locked up all these guys and Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, you Moncada. And they built a pretty solid team that looked, you know, if you, if you rewind to 2019, 2020, this looked like a team that was going to win the central for the next five years. And especially with how winnable the central tends to be. And they didn't, and when you fall that short of expectations, then there's going to be consequences.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at just the trades they made, they're pretty good. I mean, they, you know, they got nice overpays and deals for Giolito just on this deadline. They did well. Um, the burger trade, notwithstanding. But um, but if you go back in time and look at some of the other deals they got to get the you know, Dylan Cease and the Chris Sale deal and, and so forth, you know, they got some. You know, they got some good value out of those deals. Uh, Some of our historical uh, articles kind of show that. Um, So that front, I think they did fine. What I think, to your point, kind of killed their their time there was, you know, they're expected to be good and they weren't, right? They were on the upswing. They were in the playoffs uh, a couple times, 2020. They went further. Was it 2020? 2021. Anyway, um, yeah, they were a team on the rise and then it all fell apart. And then I think there were some rumblings of like, bad attitudes and bad culture. And so that's never a good thing either. Um, But Jerry Reinsdorf is 87 years old and he's one of these sort of meddling owners that has a reputation for kind of doing things his way, hiring his old buddy Tony LaRusso when he probably shouldn't have. And so it's not totally their fault, right? Because they kind of have to do his bidding. Um, So I think they're going to, I think they're going to be recognized in the industry and respected for their work and hopefully get other jobs, at least as consultants, if not full-time. So, you know, I think, you know, everyone understands, well, the owner is the owner and you have to kind of, you know, you get paid by the owner, so you kinda of have to do his bidding, even if his bidding doesn't make sense. But where you have autonomy, if you can do the right thing, then you can What I think also sunk them was their farm. Uh, they just weren't developing enough good young players after that initial core that you mentioned. Their farm is one of the worst in the business. It's gotten a little bit better, uh, over the last two years, but it was really bad there for a while. Um, so I I think there's an issue with That whole system, which is probably why both of them got fired, because you would think that, you know, they needed to address those problems kind of deeper at the core. But contradicting that point is the guy that they're rumored, according to Bob Nightingale, to be promoting was, in fact, their farm director, which makes no sense at all. (laughs) So it's Reinsdorf. I don't know. I think he's 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 to some degree. He's kind of a Steinbrenner character and he's just kind of, you know, going to do his thing. So uh, I'm not totally confident that they'll figure it out.
0: Yeah, to your point there about like some of the culture questions, there's also been some concerns about injury management and, and not only like, hey, these guys are getting injured a lot, which could just be like, a, well, Eloy Jimenez is just probably an injury prone player like that. That might just be a fact of who he is as a player that they have to cope with and, and really had no way of expecting out the gate. um, But also just their management of some of the injuries of like guys that they've played through injuries or where they get banged up and they run them out the next day and then they have to pull them in the sixth because it's bugging them still and it's like it seems like they don't have good communication that they don't have good strength and conditioning that they don't have good management of those situations yeah it seems like some some organizational problems that run pretty deep and it's like okay did it start with with these two with williams and Hahn? or did is it a result of the Tony La Russa era that's just kind of lingering or does it start at the very top with Jerry and I think a lot of fans are pointing to, to Jerry Reinsdorf and I think that's probably pretty fair um but he's not gonna go fire himself so so this is you know the next the next rung down the ladder of like we gotta fix something we gotta overhaul it even if it's not these guys fault directly like we need a culture shift, and this is how we're gonna do it. And we see that all the time, and we see the guys get scooped up elsewhere all the time. So I'm I'm hoping that for Han and Williams, because you're right, it doesn't seem like they've made any particularly egregious moves or mistakes. This isn't a front office that signed Anthony Rendon to buckets and buckets of money and watched it blow up in their faces. That they've right. they've made for the most part like some decent moves. You can argue about some of their inaction and then from that point you can argue well was that them choosing to sit pat at at certain points in time and and not upgrade like second base when they needed a a real impact that there or was that a function of Reinsdorf controlling the budget and they didn't have money to add a guy like that or is it a factor of they didn't have the farm to trade pieces for a guy like that like there we we don't need to get too deep into it but what it seems like is what you're saying that like they kind of needed a scapegoat they needed a culture shift they send those two guys out but it's not necessarily like wow these guys are terrible and don't deserve to be working near the top of a big league team like i don't think that's the case at all
1: yeah so good luck to them
0: yes um i guess last thing i'll hit on here i had a couple other items but we're over on time uh, i just want to mention really quick uh so toward the middle of the month it's been a couple weeks now the angels promoted their first round pick from the most recent draft nolan nolan shanuel or seanwell i've seen heard it pronounced both ways and i'm i'm honestly not sure it's a very strange looking name and baseball reference does not have a pronunciation guide so we're gonna go with uh let's go with seanwell that, that sounds a little more normal um first baseman he was the number number 11 pick in the 2023 draft he's a very like contact oriented guy who they expect to grow into some power um at least that was like his his draft scouting report um he went ahead and flew through the minors he started in rookie ball went to a ball went to double a and he hit pretty well across all three levels and so they just said hey let's bring him up for the stretch run and this is by <laughs> this is absolutely not the first time they've done this they've called up the first player from each of the last three drafts it was um it was chase silseth two years ago and zach Neto this pr- past year and you know to their credit Neto has been pretty good silseth has been a little bit up and down and right out the gate seanwell has been fantastic as well and so i don't think this was directly a let's promote this guy because we need to make the playoffs <laughs> type move and obviously this is pre-otani injury and i also don't think it's directly a like hey he wasn't going to develop much more in the minors let's let him develop more in the big leagues i don't think that was it either but i think it could have been a little bit that because their player development system hasn't exactly been the best in recent years um but it's it's just interesting to see this is not you know a one-off thing anymore this is now a trend of you join the angels and if you perform in the minors you're going to be on the fast track to the big leagues and maybe it's maybe it's as simple as that it's like a pitch for future draftees of like, Hey, sign with the angels sign with us, maybe even under slot. And if you, if you perform, you'll get a big league opportunity. I don't, I don't know if there's one conclusion to be drawn from this. It's just an interesting trend. It's something that no other team is doing right now. And I, I don't know. I, I thought it was worth mentioning and, and asking for your take on.
1: I think it's still fairly unusual. Um, like when they promoted Ben Joyce, like I got that. Cause he's a, just a, hard and reliever, pretty one-dimensional. You can use that. Why waste that in the minors? He's a finished guide. product. You can throw 102 at majors and still be effective. So it's not like you're hurting anything or rushing him, but then he did, of course, get injured. But the big the big risk, obviously, with, with more complete players, if you will, um, are you could rush them, especially with hitters who maybe are not as Mature haven't seen all the all the various ways pitchers can get them out and adjust to those things. We all know it's a game of adjustments. You go back and forth with those adjustments, and so maybe because it's a lost season now with the Angels, they figure, okay, we'll bring them up. You know, we'll see how we adjust to the pitching he faces, and maybe that accelerates the process. The downside is, you know, maybe. He gets overwhelmed and you've got then an up and down player like a Joe Adele, who people thought was rushed, who then just, you know, never quite makes it happen. So and then you start burning options. But, um, you know, I'm open to it. I think it's it's probably good for the game. Um, You know, it's still I don't think it's going to I, I think we need to see more than just one team doing it. It's obviously not a trend until lots of teams start doing it, and especially the quote unquote smart teams like the Rays and Dodgers and others. Um, so, but you know, if they can make it happen, more power to them.
0: Yeah, I think the contrast here, at least for Shanwell, Seanwell, God, <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out eventually. He's going to be up, up for a while, I assume. Um, the difference between a Seanwell and a Joe Adele is Seanwell gives me like James Loney vibes. Like he, he has good, a good approach at the plate. This is how he was built coming out of college. It's how he performed through the minors. And in his incredibly small major league sample size, he's walking like almost twice as much as he strikes out. And so I guess you figure that kind of guy, a, a guy with this profile where his, his deal is like, he makes good contact. He gets on base, uh, you know, as a first baseman, he's going to need to grow into some power, but the other tools are like there. I guess you can expect that guy to succeed in the majors more quickly than a Joe Odell, like, hey, the plate discipline is a big problem, but the other tools are super loud. And if he can get the plate discipline to click, it's going to be like a star. So I guess that could be the argument of, like, this is a unique case. This guy is just ready. You know, Ben Joyce was a unique case. He wasn't going to develop much more, like... There was no more room for the stuff to grow, really. It's just, like, repeatability and consistency, and you can work that out at the big league level. Um, Zach Netto is somewhere kind of in between, where it's like they had a clear need at shortstop, and yes, he had some flaws with his approach at the plate, but, like, the glove is so good, and to this point, he's been, like, a league average hitter when he's been healthy, and that's fine, and that's that's an area for him to move up from. But I guess the, like, the last thing I'll note here as my like one concern with all of this is you're right. They've they're starting to burn. They're starting these guys clocks. And if things do go South, they'll start burning option years. And this is an angels team that looks like it might be on the verge of like a really long downturn. Like, I don't know how they turn things around from here without it taking them half a decade (laughs) to be competitive again. So with that in mind, it's like, yikes, the, the two of your top draft picks in in Neto and uh, Shanwell, you're already starting their clock. And they might not be under team control anymore by the next time this Angels team is good. If you're losing Otani, and if Trout's not the same guy he was and can't stay on the field and might even be traded himself, and there's not a whole lot left else around that team, yeah, that that's a concern that I would certainly have. Um, not to say... Cause I guess, I guess the alternative argument is like you're gaming their service time. And like, instead of coming up in 2023, when he might be ready for the big leagues, instead you're saying, Hey, Nolan, Sean, well, wait until 2025 when it aligns more with our competitive window. And that's obviously not a good thing either. And so maybe, maybe you see a solution here where these guys get locked up to like, to to some of these, you know, early career extensions where they trade off maybe some of their future earnings for, you know, current security And so it's a best of both worlds type thing. Like you get to see these players and they get to be called up to the major leagues when the team thinks they're ready, but also they're not like burning through service time. Like they'll, they'll be a part of the next good angels team theoretically. So maybe, maybe we see something like that, but that's, that's the first place my mind goes to, especially after the Otani injury and after just the way that they've played post trade deadline of like, these guys aren't contributing to a playoff team in 2023. And if that's the case, then mm. I don't see a playoff team in, in Los Angeles for another handful of years at, at, like, the soonest.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to be fair, uh, I mentioned Joe Adele. His main issue is he strikes out too much, especially at the Major League level. Like, clearly there's a hole in his swing, and, and Major League pitchers know where that it, that is. And there's a reason why you keep seeing him being sent down, um, because they don't trust that he's figured out the Major League level. Um and he's going to be out of options after this year, and, and there's a clear case there that he's a bust. Uh, with Sean Well, you know, I know it's a small sample, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, he's burning. Uh, burning is not the right word. Um, he's in At the AA level, as a 21-year-old, he walked more than he strikes out. He only walked 20% of the time, only struck out 12% of the time. His numbers are off the charts. And so maybe he's just a completely different type of hitter where they have more uh confidence that he will adjust and obviously he's off to a good start uh he's in the crap out of the ball so far so um you know i'm sure he's going to come back down to earth at some point he can't be this good forever could he i don't know but um but there are certain trends you look for if you dig in under the hood um which he seems to have more than say an odell so maybe it's just a kind of maybe this is a case where hey this is a guy with a certain type of profile, we know that, you know, can be a sustainable neutral league hitter. So maybe he's just ready for it. So uh it could be, that's all that is. Maybe it's not a big trend. Maybe it's just that.
0: Yeah. I guess we will uh wait and see, but I, I think that's all I have for this week. I have a couple other items that we can push till next episode since we're over on time, but is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up?
1: Uh, no, just enjoy the, 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 you know, kind of the playoff, uh, well, not playoff, but the uh, end of season stretch run here, there's still a number of good races to watch, go out and catch a game like I did last night, super fun, even if a game, even if the teams are out of it, I saw the Mets and the Angels, both were out of it, but it was a super, it was a blast seeing Otani, Tony, and so there's, and you know, it's a blast just kind of being there, so I would highly recommend that.
0: Absolutely, I, I even forgot to mention, I saw the D-backs game this past uh, Thursday, it's Fun watching Corbin Carroll and Ellie De La Cruz on the same field—that's yeah. for sure. Um, yeah. there, there's so much to watch for, like you said. Even with those those down teams, they still have stars. Some of them have young players. They're starting to promote. There's there's a lot to a lot to like. Go catch a game. This is this yeah. has been our advertisement for Major <laughs> League Baseball. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I guess one last. I, I know I said it, we were wrapping. I feel bad. We did not talk enough about the Mariners this episode. We will do so on the next episode if they continue this hot streak because. Wow, they look like the team of destiny right now. Uh, they are leading the AL West 37. They are the favorites to win the division, according to Fangraph's playoff odds. That's, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yes, they are rising. tied
0: with the Rangers, one game ahead of the Astros, and good for them. I think that's a fun story, fun for baseball. Uh, sorry, Astros and Rangers fans, <laughs> but I enjoy that right now. And uh, let's we'll, we'll check back in on them in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Well cool, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseball values. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the season. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.